Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. We'll be talking about 1996. To join me on this journey is uh, Nick Davis. Hello, Nick. Hi, Nick. We'll keep doing that. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. What are you up to these days? Sitting in my apartment, like probably a lot of people listening. There was a a brief kind of brigadoon period of being back in theaters and going um, (laughs) out into sidewalks and realizing they were all still there. But uh, for the last uh, couple weeks, I've been playing it pretty close to home in Chicago. And you are teaching? I am. I just, I teach at Northwestern in English and gender studies and film studies. I just wrapped a class uh, for graduating seniors in gender and sexuality where we watched movies that opened while they were in college that were begging for complicated responses about Mm. gender and sexuality. And that was really fun. So Zola and Portrait of Lady on Fire and things we dare not do and just a whole bunch of, of provocations. But having spent that much time in our immediate moment, Uh, It's been fun to be back in the back pages and renting things that came out when I was in my students' current position. The things I think we're going to talk about all opened while I was in college. And it made me curious, well, what the fuck was I thinking about in the same, if I'd issued myself the challenge I'm issuing these students to make sense of something in your own moment, um, kind of scholastically, but also kind of personally, what would have happened? And here we, here we find ourselves. Here we find ourselves. Yeah. And I, I just, I really love this, this idea of picking a pivotal moment because sometimes I think back to what were the, the moments when movie going, you know, really held a greater importance than it used to. And for a lot of people, I think it's usually more in childhood, uh, or that's where often I hear stories when I'm reading critics I, I love. It's, it's often traced back to then. Or mm. For me, it's almost more located in high school, and especially like end of high school and beginning of college. So yeah, same for me that this is going to be a period where I'm looking at movies and revisiting reactions to them. Historically, it ends up being pretty interesting because I think the movies we're going to talk about are, you know, ones that were received in a very particular way. Um, But I do want to, yeah, I do want to just underline the credit here because I think this is a rubric that's been useful to you in in terms of teaching. I've done that several times. I did uh, to teach intro to film courses. I did a 91 version. I did a 93, a 99. Those were all for entering students who were born in those years. I did a gender and sexuality studies course that was all like 75 to 77 so that we could be thinking about um, sort of post-Vietnam masculinity and second wave feminism and first decade pre-Stonewall and just looking at a bunch of stuff um, in a concentrated period. So I do tend to find this really generative and also means I'm not teaching the same stuff all the time, but also it helps me as much as anything, even in my life now, just to remember that nobody thought any one thing at any point, you know, in history, like the further we get away, we think we know what people, you know, capital P people thought about X in the fifties or what the sixties were like, or where LGBT rights were in the early eighties or Mm -hmm. when people who do not identify as trans started learning more about transgender or becoming familiar with trans imagery. And, And the more I do these time capsules, just none of those things tend to hold true. Mm. Um, And so it's a good exercise for my students, but also for me to stop uh, generalizing and focus on conflict and paradox that are simultaneous with each other instead of always Mm. thinking about things changing over time. Yeah. It's like doing 
what is it called when, when you take like a core sample from the earth's crust it, it's a, yes it's absolutely that and also like i every time i've ever tried to be a journaler or a diarist it just falls apart within a week you know i've never <laughs> been good at that but there is this kind of shadow agenda too of you know kind of auditing yourself and becoming mm. interested in what have i been I mean, I know people hate these words and stuff, but like, what have I been mistakenly thinking was better than I now think it is? Or what did I underrate at mm -hmm. the time? Or what just means something different to me? And and I think, um, you know, maybe we can tell viewers that we actually knew each other during this period. And it was because <laughs> of you that I was True. writing about movies for the first time at your invitation, which is part of what makes them special. But unlike you, college was the first time I was in a big city and I not only could see almost whatever I wanted old or new, but I could walk to it. There was just no barrier to seeing things I used to just read about as I was starting to get more interested. And so the abundance was really exciting, but it also means I have no idea why I thought things that were good were good. And I felt mm. very prone to at least starting with what I understood the reception to be and maybe working from there to find out if I agreed or disagreed instead of trying to you know, trusting my own perspective, yeah. whatever I thought that was. Yeah. Also, because it's interesting to me, but also sometimes crazy that people don't seem to accept that sometimes opinions will change as well. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like opinions come out like sort of fiery hot, you know, at times these days. And just to think of anything being frozen that way for then years. But anyway, we're let's go right into one or two movies from this year. And we've sort of picked, I guess, uh, 96, 1996 as, as the year, um, which... Uh, we just squeak in with it being 25 years ago. And I also hope that we'll be picking a couple of movies that don't necessarily get the anniversary treatment. You know, you'll often see like 20th anniversary of whatever, Lord of the Rings or something like right. that. One more Valentine to Fargo. Still so great. That's right. Yeah. Uh, which uh, I'm sure we both agree uh, it is. But <laughs> here are a couple others. So I'll let you kick off with, with a pairing from, from 96. And also, I just want to clarify... I think part of what I'm really going to enjoy about this is we're not saying, you know, these are rediscovered or we're not saying like these are lost classics uh, or we're not saying we're not going to dredge things up and point at them and laugh at them. Um, I think it's it's just I don't know. It's sort of a, just a curious inquiry to, to a few movies. Um, and I don't know. That's what I really like. Yeah. It's also exciting to me that I don't actually know. I mean, part of the point is that I didn't even know what I thought of these movies when I watched them for the first time or again, but I also don't really know what you think of them. And I, as well as we know each other, I'm not sure that I even know a lot about what makes you pop a DVD into the player because I laugh at myself all the time that um, like one movie I'd love to talk about is Jerry Maguire, which was, yes, I was chuckling because I realized the only reason I wanted to watch it was because I wanted to watch it. And for me, that's really <laughs> weird. It's usually, you know, I'm putting a syllabus together or I'm teaching it or I'm writing this article or, you know, whatever. And we have related but different jobs. But I think um, they maybe share in common that we're finding out what we need to watch a lot of the time, mm, you know, with, yeah. with great excitement, whatever, you know, but um, I just, I saw that movie like three times in two weeks, I think when it was out in theaters and then have never watched it again and just wanted to watch something that I remembered as a romantic, mostly comedy that looked really good because <laughs> that's like a unicorn now. Mm -hmm. And I remembered thinking, you know, whatever. I, I really liked Jerry Maguire and <laughs> remember having all these kinds of thoughts about what a good job I thought it did about work 
about like crisis of confidence, about the way it builds this relationship, about this kind of fraught personal and professional interracial friendship. But I hadn't had almost any of those experiences. I had no idea why I thought I knew how to dole out praise to how um, a movie captured a bunch of stuff that I was, you know, nowhere close to experiencing yet. So, Mm -hmm. so I went back to that one first. It also sticks out to me because I've never really jived to anything else Cameron Crowe wrote or directed before or after and wondered, (laughs) can it really be true that sometimes, you know, everything aligns perfectly? Yeah. And in this case, it, it still does i i love jerry mcguire i don't i don't know where you are on it <laughs> well we promise we'll get more esoteric soon listeners but we're going to start <laughs> right in the in the beast of commercialism not to like immediately get meta about you know revisiting these movies but another thing that can be hard i think you asked like a really interesting question which is how do we choose how does anyone choose what the next thing they're going to watch is and i just love how everyone's finding their own path after often and, and they're visiting different landmarks along the way I mean, Jerry Maguire for me, I mean, yeah, I have not revisited since it, I saw it when it came out. And I, I didn't have especially strong feelings, but I thought the subject matter was really interesting because I don't think I had seen a movie about an agent. He's a sports agent. So, and I, I, I that was interesting to me because as, as an analog to Hollywood, you know, there are a lot of Hollywood movies about wheelers and dealers and, and, and all of that. So that was actually weirdly what was interesting to me about it was the, the profession. I don't know if that speaks to being in college and not knowing what I wanted to do or something. I do like working with more talented people. Who can do things you can't necessarily. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> um, and, and help, you know, do whatever I can to, to make something happen. I think when I saw it then, I don't think I was seeing it or understanding it as I would now through the lens of now, which is as... Here is, you know, as, as you were saying, you know, here is um, the studio film of, of a particular vintage. Uh, you know, it's almost embarrassing for me to to admit because I think it is a, a movie that is, it definitely is emblematic in some way. I think finding a different kind of tone or swing or um, velocity, I think, that it brought a little bit different. And then, mm-hmm. I mean, there's also the, the, the Tom Cruise trajectory where it's falling on that. Because I was sort of looking at what, what what was in the Oscars in like 95 and 96 just to see what was one test of what is in the popular vernacular in some way. And I was I was realized I, I had never thought about Shine since 1996, probably, or 1997. <laughs> and, and we are legion and not having done that. Yeah, I, I did just rewatch that recently also. But, but I remember um, that morning of those nominations coming out that there was such a sinking stomach collectively in Hollywood that they could only come up with one U S studio movie to nominate for best picture. And it wasn't Mm. any of the ones that the studios had poured tons of money into both in production and promotion. And that audiences, Mm -hmm. it seems so crazy to say this about a Tom Cruise movie at peak Tom Cruise, but that this was the one he made as a kind of one for me that had this weirdo title and the poster was just his face. That was it. And, and, um, (laughs) And I remember it in a way that I'm not positive, you know, could happen exactly the same way now. Like it, it did feel like audiences kind of discovered that they loved it. And, mm-hmm. um, and you felt it exceeding even its creators ambitions for it. Um, I think as it rolled out and yeah. that was part of why I was also 
curious about it. And yeah, that moment of Tom Cruise feels really distant. That moment of, of the, how do you have a dark horse movie that comes right from the middle of a big, well-funded studio feels like a kind of long ago thing. But I think too, that this comes out for me with teaching, but I think it can for any of us in conversation. You know, when I watch a movie that significantly precedes me historically, it's just way older than I am. Um, sometimes it's a it's a tricky sell to students to say I am actually for real sitting here enjoying the shit out of the Lady Eve. I think it's hilarious, you know. Or I'm <laughs> I am really swept up in Dark Victory. I think it's really sad what she's going through. But I know that there's no way for me to watch it. Like part of what I'm enjoying, and I'm not embarrassed about it, is like all the dialogue sits in with its director, with its moment, with um, historical context, with other people who tried different genre, the same genre in different ways, whatever. Um, but I'm never going to have the experience with those movies that I have with this one where I remember I didn't know any of that when I saw it. Mm-hmm. I just enjoyed it in the way that the movie seemed to be predominantly asking, but felt a bigger range of tones than I was expecting. Um, I didn't know anything about Howard Hawks or Preston Sturgis. So there was no way I could have thought of them when I saw God, every supporting character in this script feels like more than a function. I feel like they're mm-hmm. each people who could anchor their own movie and they keep getting inserts in scenes that aren't about them and or where they're not even present um that the movie just seems to feel affectionate toward everybody who's in it but also willing to you know hold people's feet to the fire when they're kind of breaking the rules of their own lives or causing a problem for somebody else and Mm -hmm. and so to now be able to see a movie that i remember a purely kind of blank slate reaction to and now kind of see it i mean people talk all the time about romances and comedies not tending to catch critical waves of affection Mm -hmm. in their own times but i think what i'm learning is that even retrospectively we only kind of do that for certain directors and so seeing this and thinking about how it was shot and what a janusz kaminski movie looked like before he only only worked with one person for you know 25 Mm -hmm. years after that and in a completely different milieu there was all kinds of cinephile stuff that I thought the movie, I found it really gratifying. Oh, like what? It just even at the level of like, this movie looks hard and soft. Like there's this kind of oh, halo cool. of light around everybody. Mm-hmm. Renee Zellweger seems somehow lit from inside her. I don't know how they did that, you know, but <laughs> at the same time, you feel the kind of hard edges in the compositions. There are, the blacks are really black. Like that's a movie about things that are going well and not going well. And I actually think you get that visually um, or even just thinking about sometimes it's just where the camera is that a scene that's only about Rod is actually also about his wife and also about Jerry who's way back in the background like just the kinds of compositions you don't really get in mall focused movies but yeah and maybe that's a way to say too that a lot of what I came away with thinking about those characters or about the way the movie made itself about its chosen themes felt really different than something like People versus Larry Flint um, the same year, which tends to tell us almost everything it wants us. I mean, I think that's a fine movie, but it, and it's almost proudly about speechifying um, and even obnoxious speechifying in some cases. But, um, but the rhetoric is pretty front and center and I wouldn't call it particularly, um, it's not the images, <laughs> it's not the rhythms that are necessarily selling me that story. And I remember that one feeling a little more highbrow to me for some reason when I saw it, um, and maybe taking a bigger risk in being about what it was about. Mm-hmm. And either because movies have changed so much or just, you know, I just feel more comfortable saying it right now. I think what Jerry Maguire is doing may even be harder, period. Mm-hmm. Um, and so few movies have done that as well since then. 
Yeah, yeah. With Jerry Maguire, I guess I can kind of assume that people know what it's what it's about. Uh, I wonder if it's worth sketching out what The People versus Larry Flint is about because it does strike me as a movie that people don't bring up as 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 much, even though I think that it has so many descendants and imitators in, in different ways. It's not quite a sprawling biopic of Hustler publisher Larry Flint because it's pretty selective about where it pauses and and when it jumps ahead. But it's not quite as concentrated as a Capote or a or a Being the Ricardos where you're only in a small. It's somewhere in the middle of that mm. spectrum. And the movie is pretty open, as was its marketing at the time, about having a point of view of what if we thought of Larry Flint specifically as a free speech crusader and didn't close ourselves off to certain kinds of thoughts because we're just starting with him as a misogynist and a profiteer and a pornographer. And, and I guess the movie's other gambit is asking us to follow along with his own complicated and also sort of not complicated love with his wife. And that the same man who's being such a porcupine and throwing so many Molotov cocktails in the culture is quite devoted to a woman who's sort of propping him up for a while and halfway through their marriage, those roles reverse as she starts to tailspin. So I also would not have watched that movie as a Milos Forman movie because I hadn't seen, I think I'd seen Cuckoo's Nest, but not Amadeus, which is maybe the Forman movie that most resembles this one. Mm. And I didn't know any of the Czech stuff. That was a movie I remember being told by a lot of reviews to like get past what it's about and understand this is a piece of brave American art. (laughs) And popular commercial filmmaking that is really about something that you won't have thought of and you should wrap your mind around it. And so I showed up like, I will. I'll be one of the good moviegoers who wraps my mind around it. And I did really, I really liked the movie, but I I don't. um, That's a movie that I think I now watch and see sort of how it's hedging some bets about. There's a lot more you could show us that would complicate the lift of if you really want me to admire this guy, you maybe shouldn't do it by sweeping quite as much under the or leaving as much out of the frame maybe we'll say um (laughs) as that movie does and like yeah you convinced me of what you wanted to convince me of but i I, we all see how you did it yeah 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 do you have many memories of that one or it's it's true no i mean it is it's really true i don't know if that's a movie that would survive first contact with the current atmosphere in a a way i mean right it's hustler there's some pretty iffy stuff uh that that would immediately capsize what it's trying to do i and i think i probably was getting the same signals that you were that about its importance and the the nobility of of you know freedom of speech uh you know also this being kind of in the middle of 90s i I don't know if the same movie could have been made in 10 years before I, I remember it being kind of warm-hearted, and, and I, I remember kind of liking the paradox of being warm-hearted about someone so sleazy, mm-hmm. uh, in, in a way. And I guess that's part of its gambit. I don't think I had seen uh, either his Czech films at that point. Thinking about the movie now, it's it seems sort of obvious that he would make a Valentine like this about you know American rights. Yeah, it completely clicks in in that regard that, you know, it's like it takes someone with experience of like being behind the Iron Curtain to recognize what we we Puritans are just stomping all over, you know. That's right. That's right. And I guess, too, something that I find, um, you know, in your own moment, especially if you're writing for any kind of public, there are certain registers or frameworks of the reviewing, if that's what you're doing, or even the criticism, if that's what you're doing, that feels sort of most and least available at certain times, you know, Mm -hmm. like we're getting a lot of really artful 
well-evidenced and and some less so uh, accounts of why the movie that's out right now is or is not problematic or Mm -hmm. is or is not, you know, part of the revolutionary solution or is or is not, you know, whatever. I think it's easier with movies that are too young to have a long critical bibliography, but old enough that there's just so much room to say, this is such an interesting movie that I, I don't know exactly where I would now place it on a, like how much I loved it. But to watch Milos Forman pick freedom of speech over anti-misogyny um, mm-hmm. and not in a like, why is he doing that? But in a like, if you hold me to the wall, yes, <laughs> like with my background and with the things that interest me and my and, you know, his own predilections toward kind of the fireman's ball clash of politics and sexuality in these absurd ways. Like, it's interesting watching him try to pull that off with that person, even though there are aspects of that biography that I, I think he's conveniently setting aside in order to show us what he wants to show us. And especially for a movie that's already been in my life for 25 years, I feel myself so much more open to be like, well, what were you trying to show me? You know, mm-hmm. and not quite foreground as much. Like when I leave, will I be putting this movie on a list that I will send to someone that I like it that much, but <laughs> I nominated for right. something like, and, and the movie's a good candidate for that. But, uh, yeah. but it also just struck me that I'd remembered this virtuoso Edward Norton, you know, speech to the Supreme court at the end of it, which is still a really great scene, but I sort of not remembered how much of the movie depends on its rogues gallery of characters who don't feel very Hawksie Sturgisy to me because they are all there to say the things they need to say to move Mm. the scene along. I'm for you. Well, I'm against you. Well, I'm leaving you. Well, I'm, (laughs) you know, riding to your rescue. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a little more prosaic than I remembered. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking, for some reason, uh, a recent movie popped into my head, The Eyes of Tammy Faye. Uh-huh. I don't know. Did you did you see that one, the one with... I did. For some reason, that jumped to mind, just because they. I think they also try to do the kind of twin sides. You know, yes, they're complete grifters, but, you know, Tammy Faye, you know, is a gay rights icon in some, in some way. So I don't know. It, yeah, and it, 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 I like that comparison, too, because I sometimes um, I don't want to shortchange those recent movies by, by talking about them only as performance vehicles. But it mm-hmm. does feel sometimes like the movie started with an investment in that protagonist, um, but is also going to show us how this actor transformed to play that person. And that is not really a game that Larry Flint is all that interested in playing. But yeah. Also, that's another case where I would have seen that movie about two or three months before Crash, <laughs> you know, whatever belabored metaphor you want, collided into the cinemas. And if I'm sitting there thinking like, well, I'm kind of surprised that Flint couldn't show us a little bit more, but maybe it's just because of the times we, oh, nope, that's <laughs> not the reason, you know, or Hustler White, I also just saw recently for the first time. So if I, this, I can't even remember the studio, was it Columbia who made People versus Larry Flint? Maybe oh, not, but know. it's not like we can go full Bruce LaBruce with this, you know, <laughs> big sort of ambitiously right. multiplex targeted uh, story of his life. But but it there are a lot of checks in place to say like, no, there were filmmakers who were taking many more risks mm-hmm. about what uh, sexuality could look like and not being particularly afraid of whether you would react badly or not. Yeah. And we'll we'll get to Crash for sure. One other thing I want to mention is just Woody Harrelson. Mm. It's pretty amazing run he's had as just kind of likable rascal. Yep. And the different shadings he's found, even just within that characterization from rascal to scoundrel to, you know, this is now one, yeah, two years after Natural Born Killers Mm -hmm. um, with its own like, yeah, performative nuttery. Mostly, I just really enjoyed watching somebody who, you know, you watch these things that feel like they're going to really change that person's career, but mm. 
you know, maybe in some cases you have more confidence than others, but they do seem to be, and I can't remember now who was supposed to play Larry Flint, who had mm. to drop out. I mean, I know he was not the first or even second choice, but I remember the excitement of feeling like he was with such gusto embracing a part that um, was not the kind of thing being offered to him around that time. Mm -hmm. And I also remember all the hype of like, you know, Edward Norton going from zero to a million over the course of that one year of movies mm -hmm. and being re really taken with his ability to just play a lawyer who could have just been the lawyer um, in ways I found really magnetic, but mm -hmm. he was the one I assumed like, wow, I'll be watching you have a really interesting, consistent career for the next couple of decades. You're obviously here to stay. Woody, I hope <laughs> you can hold on to this, you know, energy while you got it. Let's right. see, you know, and that is not how I would describe how either of those careers <laughs> you know, have, have gone. Um, yeah. They're both, they've both had different kind of rhythms of ups and downs, but yeah, to sort of see Woody Harrelson or Renee Zellweger or Queen Latifah or people who were either brand new or doing something really different than what they had shown their public up to that point and see how many of them actually, yeah, that they do hold on or that yeah. I think of them in relationship to other periods in their career now and sort of haven't for a while spent time with a moment of them really coming into themselves. And yeah, no, I, I probably chose maybe like the most boring person. So I don't know. I I have a couple of movies to talk about that are sort of from. Well, I don't know. We were talking about this before that I don't want to categorize things, but mm -hmm. I have you know a couple of movies. You know, one American independent film, um, and then another more in you know art film, French art house. And I have to say, watching them, rewatching them, they they still do kind of hew to the characteristics that one would associate with with each in interesting ways because I think they were it kind of each helped establish I think certain templates. So Smoke, of course, it, I mean, I'm cheating a little because it's from 1995, but it is a movie that I remember seeing at the time. And this is kind of showing how you start out somewhere, you know, so I hadn't seen 20 movies like Smoke at that point. Mm -hmm. um, and, and likewise, I hadn't seen, you know, with La Promesse, the past 20 years going back of hard bitten protagonists in French you know, working class cinema, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, um, I mean, of course, these are French language, I should say, because of course, this is Belgian uh, filmmaking duo, uh, Luc and Jean-Pierre uh, Dardenne, uh, and Smoke is, is Wayne Wong. I'll start with Smoke, uh, which is, I guess, by the time this posts, it may be just about one or two days away from disappearing from the Criterion channel, so catch it while you can. Smoke is actually it's credited as a film by Wayne Wong and Paul Oster, mm -hmm. um, which is is interesting. I mean, th not that they're both taking uh, director credit, but it's that's the world it's in, and it really is. <laughs> when I saw it, I thought, oh, this is you know this is slice of life. <laughs> this is uh, you know we're we're on this street corner in Brooklyn. Uh, Harvey Keitel runs a smoke shop, and um, William Hurt mm -hmm. is a local novelist. Uh, who stops by, clearly the word gentrification was not in my mind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but now when I watch it, it's almost two things. It's like a movie partly about gentrification in, in the background, um, but it's also a movie that itself feels like a gentrification of an indie movie. Um, I don't know if that oh, makes interesting. sense. Oh, uh interesting. -huh. It does. You know, in the sense that uh, the movie is actually set in 1990. It came out in 95. 
um, but it's set in 1990, uh, which when it came up on screen, I was like, oh, I definitely did not register that at the time. I think that type of, I don't know, I was busy being an idiot in high school. I wasn't <laughs> like <laughs> what distinctions there might be between where I was in 95 and 90, other than the fact that I was finally leaving high school. But yeah, it was not apparent to me, which side note, I, I, I always like to give credit to, or not credit, but just recognize all the young writers I have dealt with as an editor and at ages where I was not <laughs> where they are now, oh, uh, God. you yes. know, I, I just, I can't. So yeah, when I think about, you know, some people's work who I edited early in their careers, you know, I don't know, like someone like Andrew Chan, for example. And I think, what was I doing at that time? <laughs> it's like, I do not want to read what I wrote at that time. <laughs> and, you know, similarly for Smoke, that this was my exposure to a certain type of American independent film. I, I guess, a Miramax film. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it's structured as a kind of four or five panel. We'll, we'll focus on a character in each little chapter of it. But what I remember from just my first viewing then was this thing that Harvey Keitel's character does of taking a picture of the same corner on a block in what I guess would be Park Slope and does it every single day for, I think it's going on 10, 15 years. That stuck in my mind, you know, more than the reunion plot that goes on, which watching now, it's this kind of agreed upon, heavily engineered coincidence and piece of dramatic irony that we're going to go with where... Um, Harold Perrineau? Yes. You know, he's sort of a mystery figure who uh, William Hurt takes in. I mean, not to summarize the whole movie, but then, you know, searches for his father, but doesn't reveal to him that he is his father, um, Forrest Whitaker. Anyway, that that's something that now I would think of as a contrivance um, to a certain extent. Um, then I, I did not. There's also a certain becalmed feel to it. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but Smoke, what are your recollections of Smoke? Two that I will keep short. Um, one is that in the way that, you know, sometimes we all have like names in our lives or why is it everybody I've met with that name was so great, you know, and that <laughs> Smoke is one of those movies that everybody who's ever recommended it to me was somebody I really liked and trusted and yet I had not seen it and <laughs> until this morning. And the more surprising story was that I mentioned before having in high school lived uh, in a suburb that was pretty far from almost any movie theater where you can see any of this kind of stuff. And I was still relying on Entertainment Weekly for bulletins of what I might see later, um, should the possibility arise. And I had a summer preview issue from 95, and I had made a list, and it said the five movies I need to make sure I see are Little Odessa, Nine Months with Hugh Grant and Julianne Moore, because I think I have crushes on both of them, Mad Love with Drew Barrymore, I don't know why, um, Species, and Smoke. <laughs> and despite... Wow. That strange constellation where I think, okay, so who was I in May of 1995? I don't know that I totally understand. Um, but I had never circled back around to it and then just saw it today, which was, again, nice because, you know, you're just so free from even remembering who liked it, who didn't, who do I usually trust that I'm on a different page with. It just it got to just be a movie. Mm, yeah, it was kind of great because the I mean, if I wanted to force a point like the movie itself is so much about like forced encounters and also completely coincidental ones. And, and this was kind of both. Mm -hmm. But the Wayne Wong movie I know best is Joy Luck Club which I saw on a date 
<laughs> it was in theaters and whatever. Fantastic <laughs> choice. But and I've seen it a few times since. I think he's so good with actors. And in that movie, I feel like what he's good at, which is the way which is behavior and how people reveal and don't reveal things through the ways they comport themselves feels like it's kind of chafing against this really hard compartmentalized flashback, flash forward, flashback, flash forward. These two, now these two, now these two. Like there's just so much rigidity in that script. Mm for better or worse. And so to watch him get to direct another large cast where every actor seems like they're being encouraged to find their way into a character sort of loosely, but with some particularity and that the shape of it, while it clearly has shapes and there are motifs, there are phrases, there are obviously dangling threads that I think the movie knows we see where they're going um, that, that give it obviously internal structure but to watch it feels like shambolic a little bit Mm. and that i think if i i don't know how i would have reacted at the time but now i'm thinking about how movies that i was seeing around that time who sort of the premise was we're going to plop you into a well-defined geographic spot um and let you meet a whole bunch of the characters who pass through that to me would have felt like a Lone Star movie where mm, I mm-hmm. think part of the goal is if you were here or you lived here, this is how it would look. This is how it would smell. These are things that go down in this part of the country or this part of the world. And I think smoke does look and feel a little bit artificial in a way we could talk about as like mid nineties Miramaxi as you have. But also I think it's, it's colors, it's compositions, other things about it suggest a slightly heightened quality. And that's even before the movie ends on a note of, of a kind of love letter to self-invention or prevarication Mm -hmm. and what it means to write things we know are fictions when we're already spending our lives writing a certain amount of fiction about ourselves. Yeah. Um, So I felt really fond of it. I really, I really liked it a lot. Yeah. I, it's funny. I almost, I, I feel like I felt fonder of it when I first saw it than 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 seeing it seeing it now. I hope mm. that doesn't mean that I'm hopelessly uh, corrupted or something. Um, <laughs> but I, what I did what I what I do appreciate is this thing that I don't really think happens as much, but just the enjoyment of storytelling. Um, yeah. And this ending, you know, is simply Harvey Keitel telling uh, William Hurt a story because Hurt has just gotten. A, an assignment from the New York Times to write a Christmas story. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I love how built into this is just that he's going to be taking the story, um, which is kind of an interesting thing for uh, you know a novelist to, to put in this movie. And and that scene, even the way it's it's shot, is just in this slow zoom on Kaitel um, until you know Hurt is out of the frame, and we just have have Kaitel. And then when it cuts back. To hurt, it's just hurts eyes. It's mm-hmm. it's almost a it's almost a strange choice because because William Hurt does say something then, but we're just looking at his eyes. But just that sitting there, and that's also somehow an an indie quality that I don't I don't know what happened to it in a way. Um, I, and and that brings me almost just to mention one other movie from '95, which is Welcome to the Dollhouse. Ah. Um, which bring maybe that's where it went <laughs> in a way like the, the the kind of quiet and unironic enjoyment of a storytelling moment it could not survive under you know, some of the kind of uh you know sar- sarcasm and everything that goes into welcome to the dollhouse which i love uh to clarify but it's it's interesting to think of those two movies as two different strands of dna 
in mm. kind of American independent film um, at the time. And then I just want to, I'm really glad you brought up the, uh, the Joy Luck Club because um, one thing I discovered while I was do, just kind of reading around, um, because, you know, Smoke is set in 1990. And when I saw it, you know, I use the word gentrification. I'm not like trying to like trash the movie by saying that, but it is interesting that it's set in 1990, uh, you know, a year, I guess, I think a year after Do the Right Thing comes mm-hmm. out. Um, mm-hmm. And totally different movies, not really valuing one or, one or the other. But it is interesting to me that, you know, this this story is partly just a kind of, in some ways, unselfconscious, in other ways... I think in some ways it marks the thing you're probably about to describe. Yeah. The, mm-hmm, the, <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm from a neighborhood that's only about a mile from here, but it's a yes. world away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that, that's going on. And, and it just, I mean, speaking of like coincidental encounters, one, one article I pulled up was about Asian American representation hmm. from 90 or 91 by Gish Jen. Uh-huh. And it starts out with her describing a scene from Do the Right Thing where the Korean grocer is saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not white, I'm black like you, I'm like you. Um, I don't know. And then the rest of the, of course, you know, obviously um, Wayne Wong is quoted in the article. Uh, hmm. And it's interesting in this article, Wayne Wong talks about the Joy Luck Club and saying like, well, actually, I don't really know if it makes a difference. I, maybe I brought something a little different with my familiarity with culture and history, but, you know, I don't know. And but there was something in his answer where I thought, wow, this almost sounds like someone who's going to do something sort of considerably different in a year or two. Uh, <laughs> um, uh-huh. It's always interesting, like digging up these articles, too, that are about, you know, representation from this is a what is a 30 year old article about that. Um, and also movies recommended at the end of this article, which have not seen the light of day in a while as well. Um, so anyway, that was some other. Huh. But um, yes, I mean, that's smoke. And the, the other movie that I kind of bring to the table, La Promesse, is a movie I did not see in 1996. I didn't um, either. Yeah. And one, one idea we had for this episode is that not only are we looking at movies that we did see in 96, but looking at movies, you know, what would it have been like if we had seen them then? And La Promesse, this is a movie that is kind of ground zero for a certain revolution, I guess, in French. So, again, I keep saying French. I'm sorry, Belgium. <laughs> but, you know, the, this type of highly mobile camera work, highly efficient storytelling where they're cutting even before you almost can grasp sometimes what's happened in a scene. Um, you know, at the time, a not really professional actor in Jeremy Renier as, as mm-hmm. the kid who is, he has an official apprenticeship with a mechanic, but his actual apprenticeship is with the, a... I guess human trafficker, basically. I mean, yep. human trafficker slash, you know, foreman, because he also puts uh, the people he smuggles uh, to work uh, on mm-hmm. construction work. And that's Olivia Gourmet, uh, who's playing that role. And he keeps his face really just kind of sometimes eerily slack in, the, in this movie. And he, he's, his just expression, his whole expression seems to embody a certain... I mean, I think the movie was received at the time as, this is the new Europe you know, is a very like cold-blooded Europe where bodies are moved, um, and it's all just about labor. And I, you know, I'm sure that's totally true, and I'm sure it was true for 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years <laughs> before that. Um, but it, it found a particular expression in this in the Stardent film. And 
I'm not sure I would have noticed most of this. I love how I'm just basically like, yeah, I wouldn't have noticed that. That's what would happen in 1996. I wouldn't have noticed that. But, you know, if I'm honest, some some of it is true. Um, but it was, it's, it's, it's really interesting to watch it just as a highly influential film. And to think of it now when, sort of bizarrely, considering they were totally ubiquitous and, you know, it became a running joke about how many awards they would win at international film festivals, mm-hmm. the Dardens have sort of completely receded. Uh, from people's like awareness and from prominence uh, in like international art film, it's it's I which I I'm sure if, if they ever heard that they would be aghast. But how was La Promesse um, for your your experience? I think I saw it maybe five years ago finally and was really blown away by it. And it it has not yet happened to me that I see a Darden movie while it's out, love it, watch it again later, Mm. and still love it. I've gotten parts of that (laughs) with different Mm -hmm. parts of the movies. This is sort of remains my favorite of them. And I also didn't see it at the time. And I also remember thinking that, like, I'm very aware that when all these movies we're talking about were out, I was definitely in a period of trying to understand how cinema was not literature, which was where Mm. I started, and thinking of it only as narrative, and getting pushback actually from people who I'd never met on the web about exactly this in the way that I was writing, that you can't just talk about (laughs) the story structure and the performance. And so Mm -hmm. both because I was trying to learn, but also because it's just where I was, you know, more conspicuous direction was definitely my sense of good direction. And I think I would have struggled to see, even though I had like, I had seen like wild reads a year or two before this, which really blew me away. And I had some reference points for that kind of more muted realism and the power of it. Mm -hmm. But I remember thinking like, I just don't know that I'll have the cultural coordinates. I might need a title that does a little more for me than the promise I might need (laughs) to feel from this trailer that, um, I'd really like to see some capital D directing here. Like that's just where I was. So (laughs) Um, and now I think, I mean, it, you know, it could not possibly be a more different movie than Smoke, but th- if they share anything in common, there's a sense of like a really tightly structured screenplay that does not unfold as what feels like a tightly structured film, mm-hmm. um, at least in the sense that, well, I don't know, I think you can look backwards through it or even kind of inhabit it while you're watching. And, you know, there's all, all kinds of intense cause effect that is structuring what's happening with these characters lives. But I would be surprised if anybody in the first 15 minutes were able to forecast exactly the shapes that these renegotiated relationships, these accidents, these inevitabilities, they, they just play out in ways that I'm not, was not predicting the first time I saw it and did not remember well this Mm -hmm. time. Yeah. And I just think that that's some of the best they've ever done it. And there's so much stuff that, that people try to do all the time and you just realize when you're seeing it done better of what it must feel like to be in the actual day-to-day hour-to-hour experience of trafficking where it's not all about sort of histrionic underscoring of itself as trafficking. It just Mm -hmm. feels like the shitty job that you've had to accept while you try to find a way into the place where you have relocated through a difficult process or watching a kid who's definitely... a different kid at the end of the movie than he was at the beginning of the 90 minute movie. But there's no one scene where that turn happens. Mm -hmm. Um, The fact that the female lead in that movie is 
clearly susceptible to the greater power and authority of everybody around her, including a child, but is not played or filmed as a kind of archetypal victim or just body being moved around by other people. There's a lot of personality there. So I don't think we, when you mentioned trafficking, like I, I always find it interesting to go back and look at movies that were about something that the culture at large didn't feel like it had a lot of consensus language for until a little mm. bit later. And how were we talking about it before, you know, for better and worse, we had some more best practices in place of what we call it, how we identify it, what it means. And I think we talk so much more about trafficking. We talk so much more about the borderless multinational Europe. We talk about migration forced and not, but I don't see storytelling as confident or as concise about it all that often as that movie modeled a quarter century ago. No, I mean, that's, that's so true. I mean, I think it's really right, right on about, uh, you know, taking some time for, for a language to, to exist around a certain subject. It's, I mean, it's one that's interesting. Like this year at, at Venice, I saw a movie, which watching La Promesse, I realized it's very similar uh, template. Uh, La Caja, which is mm. from a director who actually won the Golden Lion there a few years back. Oh, the I think of him as Venezuela and Vegas, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. Lorenzo Vegas. And, you know, similar thing of, of a teenager who is taken under the wing of a, a trafficker and just kind of a, a person who has made his moral choice <laughs> and, and mm-hmm. just kind of sticking with it. But, you know, the kid ends up having his, his own qualms. And, you know, I, I realize it's pretty similar in, its, in, in some ways. Um, and that was sort of looking forward from, from this, uh, from, from La Promesse. And then looking backwards from it, you know, I, I thought um, a little bit about Brisson, um, just because just, just something about the astringency in it and a, a sense of exchange um, and just... You know, it, it's it's trafficking, but it's also everything has has a certain price. Um, you know, mm. th- there are these constant conversations where it's like, okay, I'll give you this for that. Or, well, if I give you this, are you expecting that? You know, and, and that's just kind of the undertone to a lot of it. And you know, like you're saying, and I think it's part of the existence of of being somewhere where you're not <laughs> welcome, and it's not your your existence there is conditional, and so everyone is expecting something in return. Mm-hmm. Um, just to give you the allowance, just to allow you to be, <laughs> that's not, yep. you know, and so that's strong in, in the film as well. And, um, and then I, there was another movie from the nineties, uh, that was big for me. And I think I seem to remember, I think you, I don't know what words you about, but the dream life of angels. Mm, yeah. That was, I mean, that was another, uh, pretty formative, you know, nineties <laughs> art house film. Uh, but, but that's one I actually did see then. And, became really really interesting well, it was also you know a couple of young people on the margins but in a, in a very different way yep and shot with i don't know with a light that i've never really seen <laughs> in, a, in a movie since or before in a way uh just everyone has this kind of it's like gritty but glowing at the same time yeah that would have been like a, a year or two later or so Maybe La Promesse would have hit me. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the style. We got around just, to it later. Yeah. We got around to it later in a way. I mean, the other thing that struck me is also that it's on film. Um, and so much rhetoric in the, you know, in the late 90s was about digital uh, and, and, and dogma and, and that. So it was interesting to see this kind of mobility that would be part of the rallying cry of digital being present here in, in, a, in a, and then took them a long time to, to switch to, to digital. Um, yep. Um, so I don't know, that was another thing that came to mind. 
I even thought about that because you said it that way. It reminded me of this conversation I had with Teo Bugby around the 1999 class that I was teaching. And I was asking all these people in recorded conversations for my students, what their kind of standout titles or memories or whatever are from that vintage. And like you were saying before there too, there's a kind of greatest hits gallery that usually just kind of reiterates itself. And Teo was all about, she's all that and 10 things I hate about you Mm. and the teenage movies that year. And her first stated reason was I felt like it was the last time I saw teenage complexions on the Mm. screen because they weren't digital and film captured them in different ways. And also it couldn't be doctored quite as easily. So if you really want to see a 16 year old's pores or (laughs) what's happening as they, even the characters positioned as beautiful who are clearly trying to manage <laughs> the changes in their skin. It's so, it's your last chance to see it, yeah. which is just one of those things said to me five years ago that I think about all the time. And there's yeah. a moment in smoke, the, the one you talked about where we barrel in so much on Harvey Keitel. So that we finally just did his lips. And then you, know, we have this extreme close up on William Hurt afterward, but among everything else, it was just like, well, this is what a guy his age looks like. this is how well kept up he is and also what's starting to fall. And I remember thinking, I'm glad this, I don't think smoke could have been shot digitally. Now we'll find out that it was, but I don't think so. (laughs) Um, But just as a a document of portraiture, I found that movie really um, interesting now in a way it could not have been to me at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's funny you mentioned that because that is something that I noticed in, in La Promesse, uh, just early on, uh, some angle on uh, Jeremy Renier's face where, yeah, he was, you know, he's adolescent, you know, so, so yep. and, and I thought this is, this is great. <laughs> you know, it's cause, and he knows it. He's putting weight out on his teeth. Yeah. He's trying to be the <laughs> Jeremy Renier of the future, but that's, he's going to have to wait. He's going to have to wait, right? Yeah. And I mean, I've, I, yeah, I, I like La Promesse. I think Rosetta coming a few years later, which also I guess now is on uh, Criterion, um, is I guess I mentioned Velocity earlier. That's that's def- that's movies like all forward forward momentum, mm-hmm. and that seemed would seem to become you know more and more important to them um, is is capturing personal velocity in, in that way. Yep. Um, and in some ways, I like Rosetta more just because I like just barreling along headlong with the character and feeling like neither of us know where it's going. <laughs> um, and I don't know, that's something in Rosetta. Not to say that La Promessi has much, but there's something about just the decision points where um, they want to capture that. And in this mode, it is their first feature. You know, they would continue uh-huh. to refine it. That makes sense to me. And I think Rosetta was one that because of the Palm d'Or and because it had been bestowed by David Cronenberg. And I think people forget <laughs> now how mad everybody was about that decision. Um, yeah. But, and I, that was my first time of realizing what I think we forget all the time when we write these pieces about like, well, Spielberg's going to be the head of the jury. So right. expect something kind of sentimental. And then he likes blue is the warmest color, you know, like right. that. I think artists are consistently inspired by what they think they couldn't do. Mm. Um, or, and I feel, you know, when David Lynch, and, I mean, not by himself, but in the jury that he led picked the pianist, you know, similar. Yeah. Um, and that, so anyway, for because he picked it and he meant a lot to me, but also because it got that prize, that was one I made sure to go see. And I did have the reaction I think I would have had to La Plumes. I sort of admired it, but I couldn't understand like what was all that accomplished about it at a certain level. And mm. now it just moves me in a totally different way. And it's willingness to, I, I don't know if this is part of what you're saying, but 
there are some beats in La Promesse where I don't think it's stipulating the exact emotion we're meant to have or takes away any of the qualifications or caveats, but you feel when the movie's acting you asking you to kind of reassess mm. your response to someone. And Rosetta just doesn't pause for that. Yeah. Like, and it, it, I feel so, I talk to and also teach a lot of people who for some, you know, sometimes really good reasons want to feel more centered in the media that they're taking in. And all I want is not to be. <laughs> and um, Rosetta is such a great case to me about this is so emphatically about her. It's not about me. It's not about what I think about her. It's not, my job is to witness this. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't mean you don't recognize things about, you know, yourself or milieus that make some sense to you or you know, whatever, but to be that free of, needing to editorialize about their own character or chaperone you is so exciting about, mm. about both of those films, I think in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you've, uh, you provided a perfect um, segue with just w- one little footnote, which I want to mention. I, I think it's really true what you're saying about filmmakers responding to another you know, wonderfully realized artistic vision that they couldn't do. Uh, I mean, I think Tim Burton could not have directed uncle Boon me. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I don't know. <laughs> and aren't we the luckier for it? <laughs> but that's that's generally just one of the, like, freakier and wonderful <laughs> um, choices that in terms of can juries. And that was a, just, I'll footnote your footnote to say, <laughs> I howled like a monkey during Mars Attacks when I saw it um, in the theater and loved, especially because it came out in December when even the pop stuff feels like we're either trying to be the best loved movie of the year or the best movie of the year. Mm-hmm. And Mars attacks just seem like, like oh, fuck, we want to give you some of our trading cards. Yeah. And it still has that energy. And so that's definitely a case of like, this is the Tim Burton I loved the most and would that he had been freed. I mean, it's such a case of like all that movie is, is IP. Like we have some legal claim on the tops card, you know, whatever. That's all this movie is, but it's so funny and so what you imagine somebody who'd made little frankenweenies in his house growing up if given money would make something um that whatever that holds up and i also wish he would refine that sense of non-obligation to the rest of us yeah just be weird as shit don't worry about lewis carroll don't worry about washington irving i don't care about any of them i'm not convinced you do either just i want you to do your weird shit right exactly yeah oh all the better since it came out in the year of that was Independence Day was that year. It was. <laughs> it was. It was. <laughs> Which we I hadn't, again, Independence Day, not a movie I think of lately, but there was a funny joke in this um, series that's on. Oh, Station Eleven. Station, yes. Station Eleven. Um, oh, yeah. That's that's sort of mostly Chicago set, isn't it? Or partly. Well, it is largely Chicago set, but also my friend I went to grad school with is the showrunner. I'm oh, so wow. happy for him. That's <laughs> yeah, terrific. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, th- there's there, there's a there's a funny joke tucked in with the traveling uh, theater troupe, uh, you know. At, yeah. Yeah. At, where some guy really wants to join the troupe <laughs> and his speech that he gives to to kind of audition is the, you know, this is our independence day <laughs> speech. <laughs> it just was unreal yeah yes (laughs) um in a perfect instance of how the patrick somerville version of that story is not going to be the emily st john mandel's i mean they they're in dialogue with each other but this is a different person's (laughs) slant on this experience yeah (laughs) 
I know we're kind of running out of time, probably, but um, I am curious about Crash, which yes. surfaced earlier. I'm, I'm still curious about Crash. There is yeah. so much to be curious about. <laughs> yes, there is. This, yeah, so this is, I think this is like some sort of, yeah, secret keystone to 1996 in some, some way. Just in the sense that here is a movie that just riled people up like, you know, few movies do. And that's often but not always a sign that something especially interesting is going on. It is a movie I saw in a theater and it is, yeah, I mean, I, I'm talking about how, oh, I wonder how I responded to, would have responded to La Promesse. You know, it's just like, uh, well, how did I respond to Crash? I mean, I, it basically <laughs> just fried my circuits. I mean, it was mm. just like, I don't think I had ever seen there's so many things that movie is so much of, uh, you know, I hadn't seen, seen anything explicit in that particular way and as intensely and mesmerically focused in that way as even like something controlled in terms of palette and performance styles. There are so many levels um, and so many people I was meeting in, the, in that movie yeah. um, that, you know, I had not seen on screen because uh, sort of just sort of a lot of varieties of human experience on screen. And yeah, maybe there were more sophisticated people than me who were reading J.G. Ballard, but I was not reading J.G. Ballard yeah. uh, at that time, which I, I guess might have prepared you somewhat because, I mean, there is like a leveling, chilling body of work that you have written <laughs> Anyway, so I, I don't have much else to say than that I kind of walked out of that theater in, in a trance. And also, I guess, because I, I, was still be, I would still be at the age where I was like, oh, I'm sort of watching something I shouldn't, you know, or watching something risque. I don't even remember feeling like that. It was just like it was beyond that. It wasn't like uh -huh. it, I would like walk out and just in a daze. Yes, I'll tell you, I did see Crash, and here's what it was about. And I, I wouldn't, <laughs> it's like I wouldn't even feel like, I don't know. And, and I say that more as a testament to it being the great movie it is. Yep. That's And that was also, yeah, I had not read it. I did end up reading um, the book, which, you know, it, it could have been even weirder. <laughs> this is what you get. Yep, that's right. Um, I mean, in a sense, you can, this is, yeah, this is a testament to J.G. Bow that you can read it and think that, Oh, Cronenberg lost his nerve with that one. It's just because, like... It's the fucking craziest thing, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, thing. it's almost a joke now, if you were to say in 1996. Oh, yeah, Criterion Collection. Yeah, that's going to be um, that's gonna be a disc in, in, in there. <laughs> that's right. And also, Madonna's sex book will be coming out from the Library of America. Like, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, but you also saw that in, in the theater at the time, right? Yes, it was the first thing you ever sent me to go review. Oh my god! <laughs> <That's> <laughs> a, yeah, no, I, I was I, I asked for it. Um, I was so excited to see it because I I think The Fly and Dead Ringers were the two of his that I'd seen mm -hmm. um, earlier than that, and both of them were so differently disarming in the ways yes. you're talking about that. And so I was, I knew that I could not even really work out, especially with Dead Ringers, like what is so magnetizing about this? Mm, but I just mm -hmm. feel like I have got to pay attention to whatever experience I'm having. It does not feel like one I've had before. And feeling, I guess, I mean, this gets back to what we were saying in a way about watching movies that describe a real or imagined scenario that will soon have more uniform language or there will be an identity category or mm. there will be 
you know, some kind of rubric out there in the world. And that I think it's interesting that as much as I sometimes laugh at myself for what happens when you kind of punch above your weight as a culture consumer and, you know, watch things that I frankly don't know that much about, but I sure sounded (laughs) confident when I reviewed that movie about Chinese history or, you know, whatever, or you get led along by the zeitgeist of what critics you admire seem to be thinking. But uh, Crash just seems short-circuited that in a way, because it's Mm. just such a completely strong assertion in and of itself that I don't even know how you would go to an outside frame of reference beyond Mm. whatever you are reacting to in the moment. With the only asterisk that if you just hate it because you think it's like disgusting or too weird or obscene, you could have decided that without seeing it and felt that just as strongly. Right. But like if you're mm-hmm. if you're in front of it, and I remember both being at it and then going back the next day, I, I saw it by myself, and then I the next day saw it again and brought my roommate and his friend who was visiting from college, and, <laughs> from different college, uh-huh. and they were so taken by how I was talking about it at lunch that they were like, well, would you be willing to see it again? Like I have to see it again. I'm going to be like the characters in the movie. I'm going again tonight, like to the bleachers. Um, And that was an experience of like, they didn't make me feel weird about it exactly, but like they obviously were like not really, I mean, they were as much curious about like, why are you so compelled by this? Um, As as they were nonplussed. Yeah. Like, yeah. And it's also just a, you know, just to be, be fully disclosing here, to be a movie that I reacted to so strongly and felt like had such a kind of confidence of what it was proposing as somebody who had never read any of this literature, had never seen a movie like this, had, you know, never had sex with anybody, had never been part of any milieu I, I have no group of friends who I only have because we all share this one thing in comic. There's nothing right. you could try to pull out of that movie yeah. that I had any connection to. But what I do think um, it does, it's kind of remained resonant for me as like, even if you live way more life after that, it's still so intramurally singular to itself mm-hmm. that um, it's not really relying on a lot of your personal experiences. And at a moment when like a bunch of identity labels and names were about to be affixed to all different kinds of desire, like the movie is really rebuking that at like almost the last moment when it would be that possible and gives nobody a backstory about why they're so compelled and why they do this or what it means to them. Or I was just so taken by its autonomy, I guess, Mm -hmm. which is why I had the same experience you did. I read it not that long afterward and was amazed that this was such a willful redesign of the novel that he chose for himself. Mm -hmm. I had assumed that you would only get here if somebody had thought of this and you very obediently without compromises brought it to the screen. It's like, wow, you can change somebody's book a lot. And both of those versions can feel like independent pieces of art. That was a really important lesson to me of that. And it's one I feel like I've had with his work repeatedly now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if if you came up with a list of of, of filmmakers engaging in adaptation, I mean, it's a wonderful laboratory for him. What's sort of wondrous about it is, as well, is the the complete embrace of the the desire. Yeah. Even though it's supposed to be my profession, sometimes the movies I admire most are the ones that reduce me to babbling. In this case, maybe it's partly the physicality of it as well. And that all the different actors 
in it do something a little bit different with it, which is one reason I get so frustrated when people talk about the movie like it's that I don't know that they don't like the energy of it or that it's somehow a a somnolent energy. I don't know, maybe it's a wavelength thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did feel like I carried a big kind of brief on this movie's behalf, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's maybe one of the things that um, I also just find compelling now in a way that is just impossible earlier that I, I am sure I walked around with a real sense of like people were wimps or they were (laughs) moralists or, you know, whatever, whatever I was blaming, whatever the blame scenario looked like to me that, that this movie failed, that should have been a success, you know, or that this movie is being evaluated along grids that make no sense to me. And as we think about like the movies that were big then, but have dropped away now, or, mm. or we think about um, when you, what you can do, you know, in any kind of framework, I guess what I'm working my way towards saying is that that movie has so clearly been an enormous success. Mm-hmm. I think it was an enormous success at the time, you know, like for the 16 people of whom we were two who <laughs> bought a ticket to it and saw it in a theater, the amount of conversation it was already provoking or the, the fact that it did require everybody who loved it, hated it, felt mixed to struggle for the words to say why. I mean, how many movies can you say that about? Mm -hmm. And the kind of sense of mission in that film to watch all these oddballs who I wouldn't normally think of as a, you know, (laughs) these are not the people I would pair with each other um, necessarily in a movie, but to see everybody so committed to the, how do I want to put it? I mean, like so much in that film is about repetition, which was also mm. not familiar to me oh, as yeah. the way to structure a piece of art and certainly not a movie. But once you get three sex scenes in a row at the beginning and you just watch things reiterate, you mm. know, that's what you're watching. But the movie as a whole seems to know it will never be repeated and it's not closely repeating anything else. Mm-hmm. And to have achieved that, I think just as you get older and think about all the things that like, I ascribe a lot of success to things that I think maybe I'm the only person who saw them as successful. And sometimes (laughs) people saw them differently than that, or that, you know, I would get uh, disappointed when there'd be a performer who I was really excited about at that time where it's like, I don't feel like we really use Stockard Channing enough. Honestly, we really Mm. let the ball drop there or, you know, whatever this movie that should have been a bigger hit that wasn't, but now it's so obvious to me that anybody who's like still on our grid to even talk about it had a really successful career that might have looked really different than somebody else's successful career, you know, or been less less public or whatever. But mm-hmm. I'm impressed that that movie is still as powerful and as kind of sui generis all this time later. But mm-hmm. I'm also impressed that I can now see that as a durable success and not a failure that's been recuperated yes. um, over time. Um, and that my own reasons for why I'm watching things and the value judgments I'm putting on my reactions or to their box office or to their endurance in cultural discourse can often be really arbitrary and don't always have as much to do as I want them to with how I'm feeling while I'm watching it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe it has to do too with just realizing that whatever we all do in our work lives or our other lives, whatever, whatever, whatever reasons you've had for wanting to make something or Mm -hmm. wanting to you know, be in a relationship in a certain way, just like you were, um, I'm going to make an odd connection to, you know, when you talked before about Jerry Maguire being a sports agent and like, I only knew like six jobs in the world before <laughs> I didn't know what a sports agent was either. Cause there'd never been a TV show about it. You know, I was aware yeah. of like doctors, lawyers, you get older, you learn there's a whole lot of other ways to be in the world besides the jobs I knew about yeah. as a teenager. 
Um, and it, there's also so many more ways to be successful or more reasons to make art than the ones I had in my mind of you either want to make a lot of money or you want to really entertain people or you really want to, you know, incur a lot of prestige. Um, and I don't think any of those were the reasons that he made crash or that any of those people made crash or I don't actually think they're the reasons either that Cameron Crowe really had to say what he said with Jerry Maguire, even though it was hugely successful. Like mm. when I just went and watched clockers and get on the bus, which I think is the only time Spike Lee's made two movies in a row and I didn't see either of them and thought like, yeah. Oh, this is you going as loud as possible and amping mm. everything up and immediately following it with one that goes as quiet and kind of beige in certain ways mm. as you can. Like I, I feel like I'm watching you try things that you haven't done before or that weren't what people thought you would do with yeah. this novel. And yeah. um, I would not have thought about that, not just as a younger person, but as somebody who had not taken different kinds of experiments and how I do my work. And I'm not always trying to answer the question of how can this be the best it can be? Or how can I repeat the thing I did do the best in the past? Yeah. Or, um, and it's, it's been a real grace, I think, to get to watch movies with more openness to why people do the things they do and what kinds of different value the makers or the audiences might project onto them. And so now to bring some of that to movies that I saw so long ago that I was only thinking in narrower terms, I don't even always react all that differently emotionally, but um, mm -hmm. I just feel like I'm seeing more of what the pieces plausibly could have meant mm -hmm. um, to the folks who attempted them yeah. um, or to the people who received them or rejected them. And um, it's fun to get a second pass. Yeah. Yeah. Um, since you mentioned it, I'm, I'm way too curious to hear, to hear about uh, get on the bus. I mean, a film that was, was on my radar because for some reason I remember the marketing of it at the time. So yeah, shout out to whatever marketer did that. Um, and, <laughs> but because as, as it was also a film that, I remember at the time being striking because it was about recent history in, yeah. in a way that I wasn't familiar with, familiar with movies doing that much. Mm -hmm. And Spike Lee is, is someone that I don't know if he always knocks things out of the park, but one thing he does consistently do, and I think doesn't get credit for is being ahead of being ahead on something. And sometimes so far ahead that you can't even recognize what he's doing yet in a way. Um, mm. And get on the bus. I'm really curious to hear what you thought of it. Yeah, the, I mean, it's a great movie to end on for the reason too of you saying like it's not just about the greatest hits when you go mm. back. You know, either with the greatest hits of that year or the greatest hits of an artist's sort of portfolio. It's probably not the movie that's going to lead off the lifetime achievement reels to Spike Lee. You know? mm -hmm. um, but yes, it it is as striking now as I think. It, I didn't see it then. I saw it for the first time this week to watch someone want to put something together as a historical event is unfolding, which is not something that I think cinema is, I mean, you know, rightly so not seen as it's, you know, it's just such a, it's a cumbersome art form. It's really mm. hard to, even before you get to the aesthetic reasons that it's hard, it's hard just logistically to engage an event less than a year after it happened. And so I really admire the film that I did have to order a DVD of that came in a three pack of his other movies. It's the only way to see it. I think right now, I don't think it's even streaming anywhere or maybe on, you know, some yeah, nowhere official that, that I highly yeah. peripheral platform. Yeah. yeah. Um, but to make a movie that I also felt like I had a lot of context with all the recent sort of protest movements and public events of dissent that we've all experienced of 
it felt to me like imagine trying to make a movie about the women's march right after the inauguration mm-hmm. while it's still happening and trying to honor both the solidarity and the aspiration and the force of the gesture and also honor the debates people are already having about um, whether the tent is too big or not big enough. And, and, you know, Spike Lee never seems all that focused on let me polish every edge of the film I'm about to present to you. But here in particular, while people are still in the middle of that very argument, sort of leaving all those doors open. And there are things about the movie that do feel a little bit like, I think there's four guys on this bus. We never even hear their voices or learn their names. And I think they're here because visually it's too weird to only have six people on a bus, you know, but shout out to the four people who were just the stowaways. There, there are things that are odd about it structurally. And there are moments of definitely kind of, you know, assigning speeches into people's mouths, but mostly it's just such an interesting movie about, how this is and is not a collective that has formed across the trip. And it Mm. is and is not disappointing that for plot reasons, they kind of miss the march and it is and is not a documentary. Exactly. Like you're saying, you can, you can almost kind of feel that four little girls is around the corner and he's going to experiment with actually doing a documentary. Mm. And after girl six and clockers, which are both so jewel toned and so excessive and so, hyperbolic and here's my dolly shot and like all of that stuff to just see somebody experiment with like, I don't want to let a moment pass, even if it means I'm not even going to have time or inclination to do the stuff I usually do. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think it's like, you know, catching somebody in an interestingly off, like when you've gotten to know somebody pretty well over the years and you feel like they are not reacting to this event the way they usually do or she's not usually like this. Like this is Spike Lee. Who's not usually like this. And He's got such a, I mean, he already had such a body of work, but he has such a body of work now that it's kind of anomaly status, I think makes it even more interesting than it might've been if I'd seen it at the time. Yeah. It's, I guess it's happened more often with, with documentary, more classical verite documentary filmmaking in in recent years where people catch up with a recent event, you know, something like whose streets. Mm, Yeah. And I wasn't actually aware of the, kind of hybrid nature of get on the bus well it only sort of arrives at the end okay. um it's it's shaped as a fiction up until that point but in the end you're starting to see intercuts of what look like um footage from the march mm-hmm. um with the characters who we've been following and the footage is still pretty distinct but um okay. but even just you know boy does that guy love a primary color and good luck finding one in this like this looks like a movie that's happening on a fucking bus like (laughs) most of the time elliot davis can't deny himself every yellow and blue filter he wants we know that about him as a cinematographer but it Mm. doesn't happen that often it it looks kind of unmessed with visually and in that way feels like not a documentary but you can see how we're getting to not needing to embellish at every possible moment Mm. um and some of his films feel compelled to embellish at every possible moment. And that can be good too. Right. Yeah. So that too, a 96 film, fairly safe to say that this is a, an extremely stimulating uh, group of films for this particular year. Yeah. In some ways I wish I were teaching them because I'd be curious if it would happen when I've taught the other years I've taught, you know, where I don't always predict. Um, mm. Oh, you guys are like fine with, schindler and the piano but you're really excited about bobby fisher and dazed and confused okay got it you know like um (laughs) that there's always that kind of rewrite of what the slate looks like or there usually is yeah yeah. um but so i'm missing that with some of these i'd be really curious um part of why it's so fun to talk to you about them um but it's also kind of fun to do this experiment of uh, just kind of almost you know by myself and have to think about what i think and not 
how it's going down. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to mention a few other movies from this year, not to talk about them, but just because we happen not to get to them again, just because I think it's so interesting. What else was in it was in the lineup? I didn't. I somehow have forgotten that Freeway also came out mm. um, um, this year, which is fun movie. Um, and then uh, Set It Off was a movie that I, I, I revisited actually not this recent year, but a, a year before. I, I really like that movie. And then you watched The Funeral as well, an Abel Ferrara movie that's not always um, prominent. And it turned out the only way to see it in widescreen, I bought the DVD, but it's cropped um, and clearly from a faded print. So the way to see it is on the internet archive because it used to be uploaded on some web page. And now it's, (laughs) that's how I saw it last night. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, So if people were interested in like not just watching the ones they know again, I think that's again to me watching a filmmaker whose work I actually don't know very well. I've been pretty spotty with Abel Ferrara, but um, can you make a mob movie that's actually about how all the characters are kind of centrifugally moving away from each other? It's mm. not about how tightly knitted to each other they are. Like the the ways they're related are decisive for how certain things in the narrative go. But every person is a fucking island in that movie. And I haven't <laughs> seen a mob movie quite be that way. Or how many bad lieutenants can you fit in one film <laughs> might be. I would have thought you can only pull off that tone if you really are hunkered down with one you know problem person um Mm -hmm. and the funeral feels like a cool experiment and what if there were eight (laughs) so yeah i liked that one there are movies that you're never quite sure are they are they major or are they minor like you know portrait Mm -hmm. of a lady for me is kind of defining of that year but i it really had to kind of fight its way out to that sort of reception so Mm. um i still feel like that's the campion movie that a lot of people haven't watched yeah and yet there's stuff like um Flower of My Secret, I would encourage people back to that opened in the States in oh, 96. Wow. And is such an interesting pivot from that's right in the pocket of like being between what I used to do and what I'm about to do mm-hmm. that might make it a kind of interesting revisit. And I don't think comes up a ton. That's true. Yeah. And I'm kind of looking at my list to see if there's anything else I'd want to, you know, throw out to people aside of just the personal pets that I already know how much I love them. So there's nothing, you know, <laughs> walking and talking is canon at this point. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. That Argo is canon. Yes. Yeah. Right. Dead man. I'm never going to get. And that's just my cross to bear. Sorry, <laughs> dead man people. I don't know what you're on about. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is, you, it is good. You mentioned also when things come out since that, I think there's almost a, a certain, um, imdb school of criticism where you can kind of Mm. you know and i've been i'm sure i've misstepped in this way where you sort of obsessively look at the year but it's it's really the year you have to look at what audience is receiving it uh so is it just the festival audience at that time or you know as you mentioned with flowers a secret um it actually that's when it was released in the u.s yeah and i don't even think i understood that oh no Flag at that time, no. um, and, and just to recognize, yes, that they're different questions. Am I asking what were people thinking about while they worked, or right. or what did they think while they took something in when they took yeah. it in? And that yeah. was an example for me of like I think I saw that as a Robbie Mueller movie because mm. it was mm-hmm. out around the same time Breaking the Waves was out, and I didn't, I couldn't make any headway with Dead Man except, wow, this man shot these, <laughs> the same guy, right? Really? Yeah. Like that, and that's all about reception. Yeah. We, we might have to do another um, another one of these episodes, or either for this year or for, for another year. Um, there's so many. Once I start looking at what else I saw, and apparently I saw Joe's apartment, so uh, <laughs> that happened. 
um, MTV Films uh, release. But I'll, I'll I'll end with that just in a in a final gesture of perversity <laughs> with Joe's apartment. <laughs> Joe's Excellent. Apartment. Um, which, uh, yeah, a, a movie I, I was never very fond of because at one point a landlady gets killed by being shoved downstairs and they play polka music. And <laughs> even, even as a person who liked Crash, I, I, that was what offended me. <laughs> <laughs> this is singularity that's not up my alley. That's right. It's not, I'm not, yeah, not into, um, yeah, throwing landladies downstairs. Um, anyway, so, well, that, that we can bring things in for, for a close there, but thank you, Nick, for, uh, yeah, again, like beginning this, this journey and taking us so many places into this and also putting up with my digressions. Oh, please. Yeah. It's nice to know that somewhere out there underneath the great big sky, we both are looking at Excel files <laughs> with all of the movies that both came out and were released yes. in the years. If we had, you know, if this were a zoom and you could see the chronologically ordered DVD cases behind me, it would just, you know, everything would scream the same point. But. <laughs> yes, indeed. I guess well, I'll wish you an early happy new year. You've been listening to the last thing I saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. Please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening. Thank you.